Chapter 2, Part 7 of Our Village, Volume 1 by Mary Russell Mitford Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, 2020 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume 1 Walks in the Country, Part 7 The Visit October 27th, a lovely autumnal day The air soft, balmy and genial the sky of that softened and delicate blue upon which the eye loves to rest, the blue which gives such relief to the rich beauty of the earth, all around glowing in the ripe and mellow tints of the most gorgeous of the seasons. Really, such an autumn may well compensate our English climate for the fine spring of the south, that spring of which the poets talk, but which we so seldom enjoy. Such an autumn glows upon us like a splendid evening, it's the very sunset of the year, and I have been tempted forth into a wider range of enjoyment than usual. This walk, if I may use the Irish figure of speech called a bull, will be a ride. A very dear friend has beguiled me into accompanying her in her pretty equipage to her beautiful home four miles off, and having sent forward in the style of a running footman the servant who had driven her, she assumes the reins, and off we set. My fair companion is a person whom nature and fortune would have spoiled if they could. She is one of those striking women whom a stranger cannot pass without turning to look again. Tall and finely proportioned, with a bold Roman contour of figure and feature, a delicate English complexion, and an air of distinction altogether her own. Her beauty is duchess-like. She seems born to wear feathers and diamonds, and to form the grace and ornament of a court, and the noble frankness and simplicity of her countenance and manner confirm the impression. Destiny has, however, dealt more kindly by her. She is the wife of a rich country gentleman of high descent and higher attainments, to whom she is most devotedly attached, the mother of a little girl as lovely as herself, and the delight of all who have the happiness of her acquaintance, to whom she is endeared not merely by her remarkable sweetness of temper and kindness of heart, but by the singular ingenuousness and openness of character which communicates an indescribable charm to her conversation. She is as transparent as water. You may see every colour, every shade of a mind as lofty and beautiful as her person. Talking with her is like being in the Palace of Truth described by Madame de Genlis, and yet so kindly are her feelings, so great her indulgence to the little failings and foibles of our common nature, so intense her sympathy with the wants, the wishes, the sorrows and the happiness of her fellow creatures, that with all her frank speaking I never knew her make an enemy or lose a friend. But we must get on. What would she say if she knew I was putting her into print? We must get on up the hill. Oh, that's precisely what we are not likely to do. This horse, this beautiful and high-bred horse, well-fed and fat and glossy, who stood prancing at our gate like an Arabian, has suddenly turned sulky. He does not indeed stand quite still, but his way of moving is little better the slowest and most sullen of all walks. Even they who ply the hearse at funerals, sad-looking beasts who totter under black feathers, go faster. 
it's of no use to admonish him by whip or rein or word. The rogue has found out that it is a weak and tender hand that guides him now. Oh, for one pull, one stroke of his old driver, the groom, how he would fly! But there is the groom half a mile before us, out of earshot, clearing the ground at a capital rate and beating us hollow. He has just turned the top of a hill, and in a moment, oh, now he is out of sight, and will undoubtedly so continue till he meets us at the lawn gate. Well, there is no great harm. It's only prolonging the pleasure of enjoying together this charming scenery in this fine weather. If once we make up our minds not to care how slowly our steed goes, not to fret ourselves by vain exertions, it's no matter what his pace may be. There is little doubt of his getting home by sunset, and that will content us. He is, after all, a fine, noble animal, and perhaps when he finds that we are determined to give him his way, he may relent and give us ours. All his sex are sticklers for dominion, though when it is undisputed, some of them are generous enough to abandon it. Two or three of the most discreet wives of my acquaintance contrive to manage their husbands sufficiently with no better secret than this seeming submission. And in our case, the example has the more weight, since we have no possible way of helping ourselves. Thus philosophising, we reached the top of the hill, and viewed with reverted eyes the beautiful prospect that lay bathed in golden sunshine behind us. Cooper says, with that boldness of expressing in poetry the commonest and simplest feelings, which is perhaps one great secret of his originality, Scenes must be beautiful, which daily seen please daily, and whose novelty survives long knowledge and the scrutiny of years. Every day I walk up this hill. Every day I pause at the top to admire the broad winding road with the green waste on each side uniting it with the thickly timbered hedgerows, the two pretty cottages at unequal distances placed so as to mark the bends, the village beyond, with its mass of roofs and clustered chimneys peeping through the trees, and the rich distance, where cottages, mansions, churches, and towns seem embowered in some wide forest and shut in by blue shadowy hills. Every day I admire this most beautiful landscape, yet never did it seem to me so fine or so glowing as now. All the tints of the glorious autumn orange, tawny, yellow and red, are poured in profusion among the bright greens of the meadows and turnip fields, till the eyes are satiated with colour, and then before us we have the common, with its picturesque roughness of surface tufted with cottages, dappled with water, edging off on one side into fields and farms and orchards, and terminated on the other by the princely oak avenue. What a richness and variety the wild, broken ground gives to the luxuriant cultivation of the rest of the landscape. Cooper has described it for me. How perpetually, as we walk in the country, his vivid pictures recur to the memory. Here is his common and mine. The common, overgrown with fern and rough with prickly gorse, that shapeless and deformed and dangerous to the touch has yet its bloom and decks itself with ornaments of gold, 
There the turf smells fresh, and rich in odoriferous herbs and fungus fruits of earth, regales the sense with luxury of unexpected sweets. The description is exact. There, too, to the left, is my cricket ground. Cooper's Common wanted that finishing grace. And there stands one solitary urchin, as if in contemplation of its past and future glories. For, alas, cricket is over for the season. Ah, it's Ben Kirby, next brother to Joe, king of the youngsters, and probably his successor, for this Michaelmas has cost us Joe. He is promoted from the farm to the mansion house two miles off. There he cleans shoes, rubs knives, and runs on errands, and is, as his mother expresses it, a sort of prentice to the footman. I should not wonder if Joe, some day or other, should overtop the footman and rise to be butler, and his splendid prospects must be our consolation for the loss of this great favourite. In the meantime, we have Ben. Ben Kirby is a year younger than Joe, and the schoolfellow and rival of Jem Usden. To be sure, his abilities lie in rather a different line. Jem is a scholar, Ben is a wag. Jem is great in figures and writing, Ben in faces and mischief. His master says of him that if there were two such in the school, he must resign his office. And as far as my observation goes, the worthy pedagogue is right. Ben is, it must be confessed, a great corrupter of gravity. He hath an exceeding aversion to authority and decorum, and a wonderful boldness and dexterity in overthrowing the one and puzzling the other. His contortions of visage are astounding. His power over his own muscles and those of other people is almost equal to that of Liston, and indeed the original face, flat and square and Chinese in its shape, of a fine tan complexion, with a snub nose and a slit for a mouth, is nearly as comical as that matchless performer's. When aided by Ben's singular mobility of feature, his knowing winks and grins and shrugs and nods, together with a certain dry shrewdness, a habit of saying sharp things and a marvellous gift of impudence, it forms as fine a specimen as possible of a humorous country boy, an oddity in embryo. Everybody likes Ben except his butts, which may perhaps comprise half his acquaintance, and of them no one so thoroughly hates and dreads him as our parish schoolmaster, a most worthy King Log, whom Ben dumbfounds twenty times a day. He is a great ornament of the cricket ground, has a real genius for the game, and displays it after a very original manner under the disguise of awkwardness, as the clown shows off his agility in a pantomime. Nothing comes amiss to him. By the by, he would have been the very lad for us in our present dilemma. Not a horse in England could master Ben Kirby. But we are too far from him now. Perhaps it is as well that we are so. I believe the rogue has a kindness for me, in remembrance of certain apples and nuts, which my usual companion, who delights in his wit, is accustomed to dole out to him. But it is a Robin Goodfellow, nevertheless, a perfect puck, that loves nothing on earth so well as mischief. Perhaps the horse may be the safer conductor of the two.
The avenue is quite alive today. Old women are picking up twigs and acorns, and pigs of all sizes doing their utmost to spare them the latter part of the trouble. Boys and girls groping for beech nuts under yonder clump, and a group of younger elves collecting as many dead leaves as they can find to feed the bonfire which is smoking away so briskly amongst the trees. A sort of rehearsal of the grand bonfire nine days hence, of the loyal conflagration of the arch-traitor Guy Fawkes, which is annually solemnised in the avenue, accompanied with as much of squibbery and crackery as our boys can beg or borrow, not to say steal. Ben Kirby is a great man on the 5th of November. All the savings of a month, the hoarded halfpence, the new farthings, the very luck penny, go off in fumo on that night. For my part, I like this daylight mockery better. There is no gunpowder, odious gunpowder, no noise but the merry shouts of the small fry, so shrill and happy, and the cawing of the rooks, who are wheeling in large circles overhead and wondering what is going forward in their territory, seeming in their loud clamour to ask what that light smoke may mean that curls so prettily amongst their old oaks, towering as if to meet the clouds. There is something very intelligent in the ways of that black people, the rooks, particularly in their wonder. I suppose it results from their numbers and their unity of purpose, a sort of collective and corporate wisdom. Yet geese congregate also, and geese never by any chance look wise. But then geese are a domestic fowl, we've spoiled them, and rooks are free commoners of nature, who use the habitations we provide for them, tenant our groves and our avenues, but never dream of becoming our subjects. What a labyrinth of a road this is! I do think there are four turnings in the short half-mile between the avenue and the mill. And what a pity, as my companion observes, not that our good and jolly miller, the very representative of the old English yeomanry, should be so rich, but that one consequence of his riches should be the pulling down of the prettiest old mill that ever looked at itself in the Loddon, with the picturesque, low-browed, irregular cottage, which stood with its light-pointed roof, its clustered chimneys and its ever-open door, looking like the real abode of comfort and hospitality, to build this huge, staring, frightful red brick mill, as ugly as a manufactory, and this great square house, ugly and red to match, just behind. The old buildings always used to remind me of Wallet's beautiful engraving of a scene in The Maid of the Mill. It will be long before any artist will make a drawing of this. Only think of this redness in a picture, this boiled lobster of a house. Falstaff's description of Bardolph's nose would look pale in the comparison. Here is that monstrous machine of a tilted wagon with its load of flour and its four fat horses. I wonder whether our horse will have the decency to get out of the way. If he does not, I am sure we cannot make him. And that enormous ship upon wheels, that ark on dry land, would roll over us like the car of Juggernaut. Oh, really? Oh, no, there is no danger now. I should have remembered that it's my friend Samuel Long who drives the mill team. He'll take care of us. 
Thank you, Samuel. And Samuel has put us on our way, steered us safely past his wagon, escorted us over the bridge, and now, having seen us through our immediate difficulties, has parted from us with a very civil bow and good-humoured smile, as one who is always civil and good-humoured, but with a certain triumphant, masterful look in his eyes, which I have noted in men, even the best of them, when a woman gets into straits by attempting manly employments. He has done us a great good, though, and may be allowed his little feeling of superiority. The parting salute he bestowed on our steed, in the shape of an astounding crack of his huge whip, has put that refractory animal on his mettle. On we go, past the glazier's pretty house, with its porch and its filbert walk, along the narrow lane bordered with elms, whose fallen leaves have made the road one yellow, past that little farmhouse, with the horse-chestnut trees before, glowing like oranges, past the whitewashed school on the other side, gay with October roses, past the park and the lodge and the mansion, where once dwelt the great Earl of Clarendon. And now the rascal has begun to discover that Samuel Long and his whip are a mile off, and that his mistress is driving him, and he slackens his pace accordingly. Perhaps he feels the beauty of the road just here, and goes slowly to enjoy it. Very beautiful it certainly is. The park paling forms the boundary on one side, with fine clumps of oak and deer in all attitudes, the water, tufted with alders, flowing along on the other. Another turn, and the water winds away, succeeded by a low hedge and a sweep of green meadows, whilst the park and its palings are replaced by a steep bank on which stands a small, quiet village alehouse, and higher up, embosomed in wood, is the little country church, with its sloping churchyard and its low white steeple, peeping out from amongst magnificent yew-trees. And a quote from Wordsworth. Huge trunks, and each particular trunk a growth of intertwisted fibres, serpentine, upcoiling, and inveterately convolved. No village church was ever more happily placed. It is the very image of the peace and humbleness inculcated within its walls. Oh, here is a higher hill rising before us, almost like a mountain. How grandly the view opens as we ascend over that wild bank, overgrown with fern and heath and gorse, and between those tall hollies glowing with their coral berries. What an expanse! But we have little time to gaze at present, for that piece of perversity, our horse, who has walked over so much level ground, has now, inspired, I presume, by a desire to revisit his stable, taken it into that unaccountable noddle of his to trot up this, the very steepest hill in the county. Here we are at the top, and in five minutes we have reached the lawn gate, and are in the very midst of that beautiful piece of art or nature do not know to which class it belongs, the pleasure ground of F. Hill. Never was the prophetic eye of taste exerted with more magical skill than in these plantations. Thirty years ago, this place had no existence. It was a mere undistinguished tract of field and meadow and common land. 
Now it's a mimic forest, delighting the eye with the finest combinations of trees and shrubs, the rarest effects of form and foliage, and bewildering the mind with its green glades and impervious recesses and apparently interminable extent. It is the triumph of landscape gardening, and never more beautiful than in this autumn sunset, lighting up the ruddy beech and the spotted sycamore, and gilding the shining fir cones that hang so thickly amongst the dark pines. The robins are singing around us, as if they too felt the magic of the hour. How gracefully the road winds through the leafy labyrinth, leading imperceptibly to the more ornamented sweep. Here we are at the door, amidst geraniums and carnations and jasmines still in flower. Ah, oh, here is a flower sweeter than all, a bird gayer than the robin, the little bird that chirps to the tune of Mamma, Mamma, the bright-faced fairy whose tiny feet come pattering along, making a merry music, Mamma's own Francis. And following her guidance, here we are in the dear round room, time enough to catch the last rays of the sun as they light the noble landscape which lies like a panorama around us, lingering longest on that long island of old thorns and stunted oaks, the oasis of Bee Heath, and then vanishing in a succession of gorgeous clouds. October 28th, another soft and brilliant morning, but the pleasures of today must be written in shorthand. I've left myself no room for notes of admiration. First we drove about the coppice, an extensive wood of oak and elm and beech, chiefly the former, which adjoins the park paling of F. Hill, of which demean, indeed, it forms one of the most delightful parts. The roads through the coppice are studiously wild, so that they have the appearance of mere cart tracks, and the manner in which the ground is tumbled about, the steep declivities, the sunny slopes, the sudden swells and falls, now a close narrow valley, then a sharp ascent to an eminence commanding an immense extent of prospect, have a striking air of natural beauty, developed and heightened by the perfection of art. All this indeed was familiar to me, the colouring only was new. I had been there in early spring, when the fragrant palms were on the willow and the yellow tassels on the hazel, and every twig was swelling with renewed life, and I had been there again and again in the green leafiness of midsummer. But never as now, when the dark verdure of the fir plantations, hanging over the picturesque and unequal paling, partly covered with moss and ivy, contrasts so remarkably with the shining orange leaves of the beech, already half-fallen, the pale yellow of the scattering elm, the deeper and richer tints of the oak, and the glossy stems of the lady of the woods, the delicate weeping birch. The underwood is no less picturesque, the red-spotted leaves and redder berries of the old thorns, the scarlet festoons of the bramble, the tall fern of every hue, seem to vie with the brilliant mosaic of the ground, now covered with dead leaves and strewn with fir cones, now, where a little glade intervenes, gay with various mosses and splendid fungi. How beautiful is this coppice today! 
especially where the little spring, as clear as crystal, comes bubbling out from the old fantastic beech root and trickles over the grass, bright and silent as the dew in a May morning. The wood pigeons, who are just returned from their summer migration and are cropping the ivy berries, add their low cooings, the very note of love, to the slight fluttering of the falling leaves in the quiet air, giving a voice to the sunshine and the beauty. This coppice is a place to live and die in. But we must go. And how fine is the ascent which leads us again into the world, past those cottages hidden as in a pit, and by that hanging orchard and that rough heathy bank. The scenery in this one spot has a wildness, an abruptness of rise and fall, rare in any part of England, and rare above all in this rich and lovely but monotonous county. It's Switzerland in miniature. And now we cross the hill to pay a morning visit to the family at the great house, another fine place commanding another fine sweep of country. The park, studded with old trees and sinking gently into a valley rich in wood and water, is in the best style of ornamental landscape, though more according to the common routine of gentlemen's seats than the singularly original place which we have just left. There is, however, one distinctive beauty in the grounds of the great house, the magnificent firs which shade the terraces and surround the sweep, giving out in summer odours really sabaean, and now, in this low autumn sun, producing an effect almost magical, as the huge red trunks, garlanded with ivy, stand out from the deep shadows like an army of giants. Indoors, oh, I mustn't take my readers indoors or we shall never get away. Indoors, the sunshine is brighter still, for there, in a lofty, lightsome room, sat a damsel fair and arch and piquant, one whom Titian or Velasquez should be born again to paint, leaning over an instrument as sparkling and fanciful as herself, the dital harp, singing pretty French romances and Scottish Jacobite songs, and all sorts of graceful and airy drolleries picked up I know not where, an English improvisatrice, a gayer Annot Lyle, while her sister, of a higher order of beauty, and with an earnest kindness in her smile that deepens its power, lends to the piano, as her father to the violin, an expression, a sensibility, a spirit, an eloquence almost superhuman, almost divine. Oh, to hear those two instruments accompanying my dear companion! I forgot to say that she is a singer worthy to be so accompanied. In Haydn's exquisite cansonet, she never told her love. To hear her voice with all its power, its sweetness, its gush of sound, so sustained and assisted by modulations that rivalled its intensity of expression, to hear at once such poetry, such music, such execution, is a pleasure never to be forgotten, or mixed with meaner things. I seem to hear it still. And a poem. As in the bursting springtime o'er the eye of one who haunts the fields, fair visions creep beneath the closed lids, afore dull sleep dims the quick fancy, of sweet flowers that lie on grassy banks, 
oxlip of orient dye, and palest primrose and blue violet, all in their fresh and dewy beauty set, pictured within the sense and will not fly. So in mine ear resounds and lives again one mingled melody, a voice, a pair of instruments most voice-like, of the air rather than of the earth seems that high strain, a spirit's song, and worthy of the train that soothed old Prospero with music rare. End of chapter 2, part 7